Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. I just wanted to remind you that on June 3rd at 1 o'clock p.m. in Buffalo, New York, we're going to be hosting a mini version of our boot camp. We just got done doing a boot camp in Memphis, Tennessee, and Joe Minicozzi, Mike Lydon, and I are going to be putting on a shortened version, about a four-and-a-half-hour boot camp there at the Lafayette Hotel in Buffalo, New York. To get registered, go to our website, strongtowns.us. That's our membership website. The link is right on the top. You won't miss it, Buffalo Boot Camp. Go and sign up and get your space today. Hope to see you there. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week on the podcast, I actually have in the office here in Brainerd, Minnesota, in the studio, Grayson Johnson. Grayson, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you for having me here. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> round two. Yeah, round two, precisely. This is kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, this is really cool. Yeah, it's so much fun. I mean, I, I feel like I live in like relative isolation here. And, you know, I get to talk to a lot of people over the phone for the podcast, but it's rare that I get someone here in the office. And if it is, it's Justin or Jim or someone that I'm like bored talking to. And so to have you here is just really a thrill. So thank you. Oh, well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have seen the Taco Johns, the legendary (laughs) Taco Johns and the old and blighted block. I want to get to that because we're going to talk a little bit about Memphis, but I want to start out by maybe talking about Brainerd here too. Cause okay, we, you're putting me on the spot. No, not really. Well, okay. We were in Memphis last week. We flew in on Monday. We had the boot camp Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. On Friday, we had some wrap up stuff with the newspapers and flew here. And you, instead of going home to Canada, <laughs> <laughs> why is that so? Funny? I just, I, I, I love Canadians, especially you. I think it's just fantastic yes. you're here. So. Instead of flying to Canada, you came here, and you've been here over the weekend, and now it's Tuesday. I'm bringing you down to Minneapolis tomorrow when I'm headed out to go to Canada for a curbside chat. So you've got to experience the last few days the full kind of like Brainerd Lakes area experience. Give me your initial impressions. Well, when we were driving in, we didn't really get to see any of the downtown. And so I was under the impression that there wasn't a downtown. You kind of pointed <laughs> towards it. Yeah. And uh, I thought, oh boy, oh boy. Because as we leave the airport and we're driving home, we drive right through the middle of town, but we were a block off the kind of the original downtown. We were on the highway strip. Yeah, there wasn't a lot to look at. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Yeah, and I think I told you in the car that it looks a lot like the outskirts of almost every city I know. Right. Although that was in like the middle of the city. <laughs> there was <laughs> Exactly. There were some of the outskirts, but you know, it, yeah, it looks like the outskirts of every city except it's right in the middle of the city. Yeah. Yeah. But then when we went downtown for the first day, That was actually pretty cool. You know, there's some good neighborhoods here where you're doing the Neighborhoods First program. Yeah. That's pretty cool. There's some really great older downtown neighborhoods that we joked, you know, it'd be too easy to do Neighborhoods First there because they're already so far ahead. Right. Right. They're not, they're not bad. They're Mm -hmm. actually very salvageable places. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would even say they're good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the downtown is actually much better than I had thought when we first drove in. So you think I'm overplaying it? Like how bad it is? No, no, no. Especially you have to do a lot of driving. Uh That's one thing that I've noticed. You know, I don't have a car where I live and it's really inconvenient at times, but I make do. But I notice how much time in your day you need to spend driving. Yeah. You're going to have half an hour to an hour in the car every day. Even if you lived in one of these neighborhoods, that's really close to things. You have to get in your car. Yeah. And it's really hard not to get in the car. You, you have to be kind of a warrior for walking and biking to not get in the car because the car's been made so convenient here. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you have kids. I mean, it's easy to be a warrior when 
you're kind of unattached. Easier, yeah. But when you have kids, you don't want to put them through that, which actually brings me to a question. So often yeah. in, in Strong Towns, we talk about things from a financial perspective, and you would look at, for example, the Taco John's, and you would say, well, what could this be? Right. Uh, what is the alternative that we could build here? And even 90 years of neglect and old and blighted would be better than this financially. Sure. Now, when you think of your an hour, an hour and a half per day in the car, what could that be? What would you rather be spending Oh, yeah. I think that's one of the things that has maybe opened my eyes more than anything. Because, you know, when my wife and I built our house, we literally, and I I say this in the chat, you know, we, we literally bought the cheapest lot we could find halfway between where she worked and I worked. It was like 20 minute drive for her one way. It was 15 minute drive for me the other way. She worked there for three years and then moved. She's a newspaper reporter. She moved to a larger paper and that larger paper was over an hour away. And for five days a week, she drove that. And quite frankly, before kids, it wasn't a big deal. It was just what we did. We're both kind of introverted people. So we both like our like alone time a little bit too. So it was almost like it was cool. Like, you know, we kind of worked it into our lives and everything was fine. Then all of a sudden these kids are born and it's like, wow, I have so many other things I would rather be doing than having my alone time be in a car. You know, I'd rather have it be like with this child. And especially early on with Chloe, the first one, you know, she got lugged down to daycare twice a week. We were really fortunate because she, my wife was able to work from home two days a week and I was able to work from home one day a week and two days a week, the children would go to a, a daycare center where my wife works. So they would have, you know, an hour and 15 minutes, like each way. So they spent two and a half hours in the car every day. It was more than that when she was nursing, you know, because she'd stop and like the kid would get hungry on the way down and you couldn't just be like, hey, hang on, <laughs> we'll be home for dinner in a little bit. You know, you're like, okay, it's time to eat. You got to stop and, and do all that. So really early on, we realized that this was not the optimum use of our time. Unfortunately, when we got to that point, we like looked at selling the house and moving And we actually picked out a house like two blocks from where she worked. It would have been ideal because she could have, you know, basically like walk to work. Mm -hmm. We would have been able to go down to one car. There were two things that kind of kept it from happening. First, the business that I was running was based here in Brainerd. And all of our communities that we were working with were here. And so it would have shifted the driving from her to me. But even when we got beyond that, like, okay, well, maybe we can make it work. We couldn't sell the house. You know, we, we put the house up for sale in 2007 and over the course of 12 months, we had three people come and look at it and they were all like realtors scoping out the market. No one like seriously came and looked at our house and it wasn't our house. I mean, our house is kind of nice, but it was just like the time, the period, nothing was selling. The whole housing market was imploding here. And so we've kind of made do. We've kind of found a way to make it work with the kids and with everything. But you can see, just having been here four days, my wife's out of town on business for like yesterday and today, you can see how much juggling there is and how much things that you have to do and how the drive actually becomes like a real limiting factor because, you know, we run the kids to dance, we run the kids to gymnastics, you run the kids to school, and you're just committing 20 minutes at the beginning and at the end of everything that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Because logistically, that's what you're forced to do because of the proximity. Yeah, and that's going to limit as well when the girls are able to feel independent. Because they could be a few years from now in a different setting. They could feel comfortable walking someplace on their own or going to a lesson on their own if they could reach it. I think that's a huge deal. When I was a kid, I grew up on this farm in Baxter. I showed you where that was. Yeah. And you saw, like, that's quite a ways from critical mass, right? Yeah. You know, it was, I mean, it was out in the, it, it was a farm even more remote than it feels today. It was a very remote place. But yet, a couple of miles up the road, mile and a half maybe, were all my cousins, all my friends. We would bike up there, play ball. We would go to the, the little corner store. The ballpark was up there when we had, like, formal baseball in the summer. The school was relatively close. So, you know, we were able to have quite an independent living from age, you know, four plus. Yeah. Your parents could just kick you out the house in the morning and say, have fun, be yeah. back by dinner. And literally, you know, you would find a place to have lunch. Yeah. Often I'd go to my grandparents' house or my cousin's house and 
you know, or they'd come over to my place and, and what have you. But yeah, it wasn't a big deal. And there were, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. So it was like, where are the kids? I don't know. You know, they're out. They'll be back. And you had to be back by five because we had chores and we had stuff we had to do. But that was the deal. You, you were very, very independent. Chloe is nine. My oldest one is nine. And the idea of her like w- walking or biking somewhere by herself is just, it would not happen. Mm-hmm. I dropped her off 10 minutes early to gymnastics last night and then went back and picked up the other kid on the other side of town at, at dance and then drove all the way back for gymnastics. And so there was a 10 minute period of time where I wasn't there and she's kind of on her own that we've just been able to do the last six months or so. We're trying to raise these kids up to be happy and lead fulfilling lives. And, but when you step back and look at it, it's like, they're not very independent at all and not very confident about the environment that they live in. You were in the car yesterday when I was asking them, what directions do we go? Mm-hmm. I do that all the time with them. I'm mm-hmm. like, where do I go now? Because you know, sitting in the back seat, having someone drive you around, you're just not aware of like your surroundings at all. And so the idea of, okay, what's my next turn? What's my next turn? There's a certain thought process that comes with identifying a destination somewhere and then mapping a route to it, whether it's by bike or by foot or by car. You just don't do that as a kid. You know, you just don't do that growing up and try to do that like as much as I can. But it, yeah, it would be way better if they could get on their bike and go to the park themselves. Not an option, mm-hmm. not an option and not an option where we are. And in fact, I'll sound like the overly protective parent now, but we don't even want the kids like out on the road biking because the roads by my house, you're not going to have get many cars. You might get a car every 20 minutes, but when the car comes by, it's going to be going like 50 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not going to be expecting kids going back and forth out in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. So it is an isolating kind of place. And I, my wife and I have identified that and like tried to deal with it, but it's really hard. I mean, there's really limited options of what you can do, especially since, and I'll, I'll just say I'm empathetic for people who find themselves financially in positions where they're stuck. I won't say we're exactly stuck in our house today, but certainly back in 2007, 2008, I had put a lot of our home equity into starting the business. You know, when 2008 happened, 2007 happened, everything just went south, like in a hurry. We never were forced to sell the house. I don't know if we were technically underwater, but we certainly weren't getting, (laughs) you know, interest at the price we were asking for it. And I suspect that if we had been forced to move and forced to sell, that we probably would have had to do it at a loss. We would have owed more on our mortgage than what we would have gotten for the house. And that just makes you stuck as well. You know, I mean, that just limits your options in a big way. So I'm sympathetic to people that find themselves in that situation. It's very much where my life is. Yeah. And I found that really fascinating coming here because I had no idea really what your home situation was. It's funny because in Memphis, when they were reporting on us, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, big city liberal, go back to your tower. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, Chuck the big city liberal. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, you couldn't be further from the truth in terms of like what my life and disposition are. Mm-hmm. In fact, when, when I first came here, you said seeing Brainerd yeah. will really inform why you are the way that you are. Yeah. And, and has it done that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I see why you're frustrated with certain things. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm very much a product of this. And I think one of the reasons why I can speak sincerely about a lot of the things that I talk about, and I, people tell me often that I come across as very sincere and it was always like puzzling. Like, I don't know how to turn on and off sincere, I think a lot of maybe the reasons why I come across as sincere is because I really like live this. This isn't like a theoretical exercise. I'm not saying that, you know, we should be building in this way because that's the way I've chosen. And I think it's superior. I've actually intellectually started to ask some really tough questions about my place in my city and why it's not working. And here's the answers I've come up with, but I didn't do it from a position of I'm better than you. And this is how I live and trying to convince you that you should live differently. I'm actually trying to find that different way to live. I'm actually trying to figure out like what is best and how do I get there? It's maddening at times. It's frustrating, but it's anything but ivory tower. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very like real, real deal. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. yeah, I'm going through the same thing, just trying to figure out. Yeah, another place for me. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exactly the title I was going for because I grew up in the suburbs, right? Right. So I felt that frustration as well. And the choices that I've made about where to live aren't from, maybe they are now, but originally they weren't from any sort of architectural snobbery or big city life or anything like that. It was just where can I live that doesn't frustrate me as right. much as where I grew up. This city, I mean, I've described it in many ways as many times I've said it's like fingernails on the chalkboard for me, mm-hmm. just being here. It's like, I, I feel like it is shouting at me continuously and <laughs> in, in a bad way, you know, yeah. because I'm so like hyper tuned and hypersensitive to it. And that's always been, I mean, when I was a kid, it was easier for me to be on the farm out in the middle of the woods. It was very comforting coming to town was a a really difficult, harsh experience. Some of my friends in the urbanism field roll their eyes at me because I really enjoy like Disney, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like I like the theme parks. I love the resorts. I I love the design stuff that they do. But a lot of it is because it was almost like the thing I was comfortable with, you know, it was like the, uh, I wasn't into the gritty urbanism as much as like someplace that would be nice, like well-designed, beautiful. Because my city is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And and you can see how it didn't used to be this way. I mean, right? We're going yeah. through down and I'm pointing out like this corner used to be framed really nicely. This building used to be here. This, you know, and it's just atrophied. It's almost like, you know, what I envision to be like the end of the Roman Empire as things are like falling apart <laughs> and nobody really understands why and no one really understands how to fix them, but they're all doing the best they can, but things just keep falling apart. That's kind of what I feel like this place is. And it's depressing at times. I don't think it's alone, though. I think there's a lot of cities that are experiencing the same thing, which is probably why your message has really touched a chord with so many people. Yeah. It's funny because when I started writing the blog, part of it was like a cry in the wilderness, really. It was, here's what I'm seeing. And when I say this stuff here, people think I'm crazy. And people don't like me when I say these things here. In fact, if you go way back to like the early days of the blog, you can read like the very first comments we were getting. And they were largely from locals here telling me, shut up. Like, why are you saying these things? And one person even went on and said, like, you'll never work in this town again. (laughs) You know, you don't know how many people like hate you and, you know, just can't stand you. And why don't you just shut up? And this was not like a random like person off the street. This was like someone in a major organization here that does economic development for the region. She actually told someone that she had too much to drink uh, that night and should have like withheld her comments. But, and that was very much like the vibe I was getting. And so you kind of had this choice, like, do I leave this place that I grew up in that my family has been since the early 1900s and just like walk away from it? Or do something else. And I I didn't really know what to do. And the blog was almost like therapy or like an attempt to share this experience and see if anyone else had a similar experience. And what I found was that the narrative like resonated with everybody, you know, with this just huge swaths of the country Mm -hmm. in a way that's been a little scary and a little depressing because I I don't want other people to like live, (laughs) you know, with, with kind of the anguish that I've had at times with this place. On the other hand, it's really comforting to know that there's a lot of people who, you know, first of all, I'm not crazy. I am seeing things that are real. There's other people out there that see this too. And that, you know, we can over time kind of figure out strategies and ways to deal with it and maybe move the ball a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you're dealing with themes, and it, it applies to small places, big places. Yeah. Memphis is a very different place. And yeah, yeah. You're able to say things there that resonated with people in the yeah. same way. So It's interesting now because we're actually talking about moving, and we've been having this conversation in my family for a while now. I mean, we had it years ago. We were ready to move. But now we're having like a different conversation about moving because four years ago, 2010, was I even working for Strong Towns? I know we had the blog and we had the podcast and we had the 501c3, but I don't think there was any revenue at all. I don't think I was working for Strong Towns. I think it was this, that summer when I actually started working here full time or half time. And then it was like another year before it was actually full time. I was still, back when we were looking to sell the house, very seriously looking at it, was still kind of tied to this area. Now, because of 
the way things have evolved and the way things have moved, I have the luxury of being able to live pretty much anywhere. Mm-hmm. Most of my job now is doing this, but is also traveling and meeting with people and helping different communities around the country. And so, you know, I can do that anywhere that I can get to an airport. So kind of the limitations that we had on where we can move are, are gone. And so we're having a really different conversation at my house about what's another place for me. You know, what's the best place mm-hmm. for us as a family to live and to move? And quite frankly, that is looking at, do we move closer to town? Because mm-hmm. now we have equity in our house. The market's changed a little bit. We've pumped enough money into the system where <laughs> people are starting to think they can make money on housing again. And I think we can actually like unload our house. Or do we move somewhere much further away. You know, do we move closer to where my wife works? Do we move to a bigger city like Minneapolis, St. Paul? Do we move across the country to a different state? Those are all options like to one degree or another on the table. And it's interesting because it started me looking at places in a different way than I had before. Before it was always like analytical, like I'm going to look at this, see what's going on, see if I can help add some value, understand it. And now it's like, well, what I want to live here. And that's kind of added a different dimension to my life and to the things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well said. Yeah. You've got to experience the full like maroon life immersion with the kids. Yeah. And they adore you. They always like. (laughs) That's just because I braid their hair. Yeah. Yeah. You do braid their hair. It's really nice. But you got to uh, walk the old and blighted block and the shiny and new block. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at those places, you've heard the narrative how salvageable do you think this place is? And like, what would be some of the things that if you were like where I am, like looking to move somewhere, mm-hmm. what would be the things about this place that you would say, yeah, you know, that I could see myself here. Yeah. I don't remember the name of the neighborhood that we drove through yesterday. The, the North one. Brainerd one by the park. Yeah. 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 It's North Brainerd. It's the Gregory park. The original plat of Brainerd had a square, a Gregory square. And then around that is kind of the first neighborhood that was established just north of where the traditional downtown and the the railroad stop would have been. So it's a neighborhood with like really good bones. Yeah. So when we were driving in for the first time, I don't remember what I said in the car. I was like, oh, so we're getting into the nice neighborhood now. And you're like, oh, hold on a second. No, actually, this is the poorest (laughs) neighborhood in town. I was like, what? But these houses are so clearly better. Everything about this is so clearly better. Okay, hang on. We had driven through Baxter which is everything there was built post-World War II. That was where the farm was growing up, was way out in the countryside, right? But since, I want to say when I was a kid, there was like 900 people in Baxter, and now there's 9,000. That increment of 8,000 people have all been on new auto curvilinear street. You know, the whole like post-World War II thing has been played out in Baxter. Mm -hmm. We drove through that on the way in. And I showed you some of that, which is very like, indistinguishable from anywhere else. Yeah. And then we arrive in Brainerd in the poorer neighborhood of Brainerd. Yeah. Which is also in some ways indistinguishable. It's not like these houses are all super, super unique or anything like right. that. They look very much like the beautiful small town that I'm in right now and sure. the neighborhood I live in now. It's clappered houses, uh, nice porches, that sort of thing. I think the big differentiator is, is the garage attached or is the garage not attached? Right. Because as soon as you have an older house with a carriage house in the back, it's just a lot nicer frontage. It does change everything. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, so we were going through those neighborhoods and I would have thought that they would be much, much more expensive mm-hmm. than the ones in Baxter that we went through. But I would live in one of those neighborhoods. I would feel comfortable doing that, being able to walk places. It's a little bit unfortunate that there doesn't seem to be a direct walking route to the downtown. In fact, if I'm getting my geography right, you have to cross the tracks. Is that right? Oh, yeah. You have to cross the tracks, and there's been no thought for people doing that on foot. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, not even as an afterthought. You know, the whole complete street thing is, you know, will accommodate pedestrians in this auto-dominated realm. Mm -hmm. We haven't even gotten to that point yet. It's not even an afterthought. The people that we see walking through there are literally walking in like a really dangerous place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even just going to lunch today, we drove to a place that I would never think of driving to. We got in the car and like we can look out the window here and see the place we drove to. It's about 100 meters away, maybe. <laughs> uh, yards. Oh. What? I don't know how many yards that is. Those are pretty close, actually. Meters it's and pretty yards? close. It's about five or 600 feet away. You could like, drive a ball a, and hit that. You have to be pretty good, but you could hit that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Happy Gilmore could get. Yeah, yeah, Happy Gilmore could hit that. Yeah, so we drove there, and I am a warrior of yeah. walking yeah. and cycling. But you didn't question why we drove. I didn't question why we drove, because I had to walk that this morning, right? right I had you did. my camera out there, mm-hmm. and I had to kind of walk over here, and it was cold, yeah. and it was miserable, mm-hmm. and I was waiting at the lights for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I think what bothered me most about it was that it didn't make sense. Like, it was a straight line, but I couldn't walk in a straight line, right? because there was a barbed wire fence, right. and several rail yards, and all of this parking that could have easily been a straight shoot towards where people are working and that didn't happen so not only was it physically frustrating to do and cold and uncomfortable but it was just mentally really really frustrating yeah one of the more interesting things about that particular walk that you did today where that old and blighted block is to our office if you go the same distance in the other direction you get to what literally is the poorest neighborhood in the community and there's a community where we lead the state in unemployment rate. So mm-hmm. this is not like a wealthy community, right? It is outside of here. The Brainerd Lakes area is like massively wealthy, but Brainerd, the city itself is, is really not. Okay. So that really poor neighborhood, there's no grocery store anywhere in that neighborhood. The closest grocery store is in North Brainerd, which is about like six blocks beyond the old and blighted block is a grocery store. The next closest grocery store is the Walmart in Baxter, four miles away. So the people who live in that South neighborhood either have to drive, which a lot of them do, but a lot of them don't have cars or they only have one car. I'll just throw out some other scenarios that I'm personally familiar with of people that live there. They have a DWI and they're not allowed to drive. There's a amazing like high number of people who have had their licenses revoked or are not able to drive for that. So now all of a sudden you get a January where you have a two week stretch where it does not get above zero and where for long periods of time, it's 20 below 30 below. Mm-hmm. How do you get from that neighborhood to the grocery store? You walk. We see just streams of people walking by on that really, really unsafe route. Mm-hmm. You can see the desire lines as we oh, call yeah. them, right? The worn through the grass where people want to sidewalk. Well, imagine that at 20 below with 20 mile an hour winds, with four feet of snow in the ditches Mm -hmm. and now make that walk Yeah, to get your milk and bread. Right. Yeah. And that neighborhood wasn't so bad. I mean, I still like those houses better than, you know, maybe that's just a preference for me, but I would rather live there than the places that we drove through on the outskirts. And they had that great little corner store that was vacant. Yeah. It should have been a grocery. Like, I'm sure it was oh, yeah. a grocery. No, I, was at one not? point, well, I, I've talked to people who lived here. I mean, my mom lived in the Northeast neighborhood growing up, and she said there was like half a dozen grocery stores throughout the, you know, all, all over in the neighborhood. Yeah. Basically, there were little things all over the place. Yeah. And that would have been a three to five minute walk for right, them. Right. And then someone could have the job of running that place. And yeah. I mean, I don't know. I can't predict whether it would be successful or not. But I mean, it looked like it was built and lasted for decades because it was an old building right? as a corner store. Yeah. Oh, that one. I know which one you're talking about. You know what that was? What was it? When I was a kid. I, I don't know what it was before that. But when I was a kid, like when I was born, the house that I lived in for like the first two years of my life was literally three houses down from that. Mm -hmm. That was a butcher. Oh, that would be great. Like the real butcher. Yeah. Right. Like the old school brown paper. Oh yeah, Yeah. totally. Like you would swing by there and and pick up your meat and go home and and cook. You know, it was like, that was a butcher shop. It was awesome. It was really great. Yeah. Put a green grocer next to it and you're laughing. Well, right across the street, you didn't see it because we were going the other way and you could, but right across the street is the only neighborhood grocer in all of Brainerd. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I mean, it's like no bigger than my office here, Mm -hmm. you know, like 200 square feet is this tiny little building. And they've got like the staples, right? Mm -hmm. The daily needs and and a little bit of other things. They've been around since I lived there too. And that's the last of the family grocery stores. The only reason it works there is because you have that mile and a half, two miles to the nearest grocery store. The nearest convenience store is, you know, a mile from there. Talk about food deserts. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of those kind of characteristics to it. Yeah, I wonder how much of the success of those stores is due to our culture as well, because we've got such a culture now of 
taking the minivan once a week, once every two weeks, Mm -hmm. going to the grocery store, going to Costco, going to wherever it is, and then just loading it up with six liters of milk and 48 eggs and, and, you know, the supersized double bags of chips and that sort of thing. And everybody thinks of grocery shopping as an inconvenience. Whereas I think if there were a culture shift and, and there are places in the country where you can do this, you can stop maybe three times a week on your walk home from work and yeah. you can pick up what you need as you need it. Yeah. I don't know if that's a culture thing that's preventing those, those places from existing because there very well could be a local grocer that tried to do it and nobody would come. I have a theory and I would tell you that my experience is a little bit different. We often go to grocery shopping like right after church because the girls have Sunday school right after church and we have like an hour and 20 minutes with nothing to do. They don't have adult Sunday school <laughs> at my church anyway. So, you know, we go to the coffee shop and talk or we go grocery shopping and, you know, we'll stock up on things that you can buy in bulk. That being said, I can guarantee you that two, three times a week we're stopping at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. It's like all, it's like all the time. Right. And stopping at the grocery store means driving out to the edge of town going through the frontage road, all that stuff, going to the parking lot, walking across the big parking lot into the store to the way back of the store to get a jug of milk and then coming up to the front. It is, you know, not a convenient trip. It is not a quick trip, but it's something that you just grow used to. You just grow accustomed to, you know, get the text. Would you swing by and grab milk and cheese? You know, you go get milk and cheese. I don't feel like the barrier is necessarily like the convenience of it. Cause I think if it was there. Like people would do it conveniently. I actually think that it is the ability of people to do it at a scale and a volume where it will financially make sense hmm. because you look at like the markup on groceries. It is small mm-hmm. as a really like the margins for grocery store are really, really small. If you're making like 2%, 3% margins, you've got to do huge amounts of volume to pay anybody anything. Yeah. Right. If you could somehow get that margin up to like 7%, 8%, 10%, well, now you're charging 10% more for a gallon of milk. Because nobody values the time it takes to actually go right. to the other grocery right. store, right? Exactly. I do that math yeah. <laughs> because I don't have a car, right? Right. So if I have to take transit out somewhere, which doesn't exist in my city now, yeah. or if I have to take a cab, I immediately add that extra $10, $15, $20 right. or plus lost wages or yeah. whatever it is that you want. Yeah. And I say, yeah, I would much rather pay 10%, 15% more for my groceries, right. support a local business right. and not have to spend that time. Yeah, you do. And for me, I don't. And why don't I? For very rational reasons. Not because I can't do math or can't figure this out, but the driving is a sunk cost. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I've already paid for the car. I'm paying for the insurance. I'm putting gas in it. I'm literally driving, you know, maybe a mile out of my way. So incrementally, it's not that much more cost. Yes, it sucks up like 15 minutes of my time, uh, you know, but I want a jug of milk. So I'm willing to invest that. You can see how the inefficiencies and kind of the kookiness of how we do things just kind of builds on itself. I've always looked at these people who say, with like scorn, you know, people are idiots who, when they do the drive to you qualify thing. You know, I remember in graduate school, you'd get these papers and some of my classmates and stuff would just like ridicule people who would live out in the suburbs and the exurbs because, you know, can't they figure out how much time they're wasting and da da da? You know, why would you drive that far for the the place with the granite countertops when you could just have a, a smaller house closer in? And you're like, okay, I get that. Like, that makes a lot of sense, right? I, I get that argument. But the rational person, doesn't necessarily like a lot of those costs are like sunk costs for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to spend 20 minutes in my car to live in the second ring suburb. So why not spend 30 minutes in my car to live in the the next burb out and get a much bigger house? Yeah. Now, you know, that burb is going to be harder to, you know, you're going to have to drive a little bit more than to get milk. And so everything kind of compounds on itself. Yeah. But that's not necessarily evident until you, like get into it and your lifestyle, you know, and you get like accustomed to certain things. Yeah. And it's almost like the old adage of heating up the frog 
in exactly. the water. You know, you you just kind of grow accustomed to it, right? And it works the other way too. I'm just remembering that conversation we had in the um, the trolley stop. Was that what the restaurant was called? Uh, in Memphis. Yeah, where Mike and I were yeah. joking. Mike Lydon and I were joking about just not using our licenses. So <laughs> right, you know, right. I was joking that my I didn't use my license. Your driver's for so license long expired. That it expired, right. and I had to do the whole process over again because I was at university, didn't have a car, that sort of thing. Anyways. Right. Right. And we were just joking that it's, it's, it's like the spectrum where it's like really, really, really convenient not to have a car. And then you get along the spectrum and then it becomes the most inconvenient thing in the world not to have a car. Right. right. And it kind of works the other way where like you really have to be all in. Yeah. Or yeah. It, it doesn't make a difference. You've been to my house now mm-hmm. and you've seen where I work. What would you think about me biking to work? Oh, it'd be impossible. I do in the summer. Are you kidding? No, no. I've, and this is like part of like, I am trying to be the strong towns person that I am the advocate, you know, like I'm going to bike to work. I'm now and worried so, for your life. <laughs> Those yeah, are fast no, roads. No kidding. I don't feel um, safe driving on them, no, let alone no. biking. You remember when we were on spooky lane road, the yeah, road yeah. that my kids named this cause it's got a bunch of hills and stuff. I take that. It's kind of like a back road in. And really the only really scary part is like the last three miles where you're in the strode land. Yeah. There's parts of it that are really, really freaky, like where I'm scared. But for the most part, you know, you can get there and, you know, I can get into work, but it's 50 minutes, you mm-hmm. know, it's 13 miles. It takes a long, especially when you get to town, you've got to stop at all the lights and, you know, there's no like nice route. It's a huge commitment to do. It is so much easier to drive. Yeah. I mean, it is so... Especially if you have to drop the girls off. Well, doing it anyways. The only reason I bike in the summer, and I don't do it every day. I only do it on the days that my wife is home, and then only when it's not raining, you know? So it, it doesn't wind up to be like 50 trips in the summer, maybe like 20, 25. But, you know, doing that has been like a real eye-opening experience. On that continuum, you have to be pretty like committed to biking to yeah. actually bike here to work. It's not like it's an easy choice. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I were going to go down to one car or be car free, my life would be a nightmare in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I I I literally couldn't do it and live where I live. I would have to move someplace else. It's easy for me to be sympathetic to people who cannot envision a world where they would bike and walk more because a huge percentage of our geography just doesn't live in places where that even is possible, let alone would in terms of your time and effort make any sense. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely get that too. Yeah. It's a weird like gap. We've got a bridge in a sense, you know, Mm -hmm. we've got like, when I go to places around this country, I see a lot of hope. I see like a lot of things that could be better. I don't see those things here, but it's not that they're not here. It's just that I have trouble seeing them because I'm so close to it. But if you step back and look at it, you know, if we adopted a strong towns approach, if we committed ourselves to doing things like fundamentally different, we're not talking about taking away people's cars. We're not talking about forcing people who live 15 miles away to bike in, you know, but we're talking about making little tiny changes that would make life a little bit easier for people who wanted to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And I look at this city and I'm like the just wave of investment that you would get the quality of life that people would have, you know, we could just, change everything really quickly around here with just a tiny bit of focus on doing something different. And I really feel like that's not a high burden to get over either in this city or in cities across the country to get this started, you know, to get kind of to that next step. And I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but I think your reaction to this place was the same. Mm -hmm. Like it's very salvageable. Yeah. Yeah. Especially parts of it. And I think that there's probably enough people everywhere would desire to drive less or would desire to be able to have more of a social life in their city. It's not like they want to live in downtown Manhattan or anything like that. Right. But they would like something different than what they have. And that's not presently available to them. Yeah. It's interesting because I have no, I mean, no offense to Minneapolis, St. Paul, which I, I think are like wonderful cities. And quite frankly, if I all of a sudden came across like millions of dollars I would love to have like a condominium next to Target Field because I love the twins. I love hanging out in the Twin Cities, but for like small stretches of time, right? For me, I would love, like if I could have the perfect environment for me, it would be a really like well-designed small town. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I've seen polls 
and surveys where they ask people their preferences. And most people would like to live yeah. in a small town. Main Street USA, right? They, most Disney people would it. like, you know, Disney got it right in yeah. many sense. They're, they're representing an idealized version of the type of place people would like to be in. Yeah. And, you know, while we're not going to have forced perspective and, you know, a castle at the end and, you know, parades three times a day, we could have like a decent designed place that you'd actually like to be in that you could actually get to and live in a neighborhood that's relatively close without being in Brooklyn or Manhattan in a small town setting. I, I think that one of the greatest demands that's undermet and underserved right now is that in this mm-hmm. country. Yeah. Which is why any place that becomes like that, that even becomes immediately too expensive. Yeah. Any <laughs> place average that person to live in. even like modestly figures it out. Yeah. I made a statement around here. Well, this was way over a decade ago now that I think that, you know, Brainerd should be like the veil of central Minnesota. And I wasn't saying it in terms of like, it should be rich and exclusive because it's, that's not what I was saying, but that, you know, we're in the middle of this huge tourist area. We have all these lakes, we have all these resorts. There's this huge draw to this area. If we just did like halfway decent design of this place, it would just suck people in because they're here. They're like all around us. We're like, you know, drowning in people who want to be in this place, Mm -hmm. but everything we do like repels them. And if we just did like the tiniest bit, it would be too good. It'd almost be like too successful, Mm -hmm. you know, too quickly. And when I said we should become the veil, it was more like saying, look, instead of being like the place that tries to get the bottom of the economic barrel, if we actually just like aimed a little bit higher, we'd have so much opportunity for everybody here that we wouldn't know what to do with it all. And I would have the other worry, like we're becoming too exclusive, you know, and people just look at you like, that's crazy. Brainerd is a bunch of poor transient renters that, um, you know, don't care about their community. And that's like the mantra. That's the mantra among the council members. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many council members have told me the citizens of Brainerd, the people that they represent are not invested in the community and don't care. I'm like, are you serious? Have you met them? Have you talked to them? What are you saying? Mm-hmm. Well, their city planner says all the time, we're just a city of renters. So nobody cares. And I'm like, do you know, like Manhattan, <laughs> you know, a city of renters. It's not like the renters. It's not the fact that people rent. It's the fact that there's no investment. There's right. no reason to invest. There's no draw. There's no hope that the neighborhood is going to improve or become a better place. So people don't invest yeah. here. You can see the future and it's horrible. Yeah. You can see the future and it's just a like worsening condition of what we have now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Brainerd. All right. It's coming back. We'll see where I live a year from now. And, and Fredericton. Fredericton. <laughs> imagine you as a Canadian. Well, you'd never, well, I can't say you'd never, but you, you wouldn't know actually be a Canadian. I have to say I have never been to Canada when I haven't just completely been in love with it. I've never been someplace in Canada I haven't totally loved and said, I could live here. The fun thing about it is as soon as I go north, I don't have to worry about how I talk anymore. I just <laughs> I just can like let loose. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we won't hate on you, friend. <laughs> no, you that. won't. No, and I go other places in the country and they kind of giggle at you the way yeah. you talk. I go north and they're like, yeah, you're, you know, you, you fit, fit right, right in. in. Yeah, it's exactly. perfect. Yeah. But Canada has, you know, just some beautiful... I just love it. I can't tell you how many cities I go to that try to recruit me, you know, like, oh, what can we do to get you here? Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I'm like, you know, I come back here and they're like, what can we do to get rid, you know, rid of you? Like, <laughs> why won't you leave? You should just start leave? a sabbatical, you know, you should go on sabbatical every year <laughs> to another city and they can put uh, you up in a nice house. And that would be, that would be interesting. Yeah. You can get a personal tutor for the girls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope no one from my wife's work is listening to this. I don't know if they do or not because, you know, we're not necessarily talking about her quitting her job or like moving to a different job, but you know, we are like casting a pretty wide net of like where we would move to and where we would go. And yeah, that's been very interesting. I'll tell you what, if this place decided tomorrow we want to become a strong town, we actually want to change our economic development approach. We want to change our transportation approach. 
We want to change our land use approach and we want to start doing neighborhoods first type things in all these neighborhoods. We're going to give up on the big mega project. We're not going to spend millions of dollars fighting congestion. We're going to become the country's first like real 100% dedicated strong town. I'd be all over this place. Mm-hmm. And you know what would be cool? There'd be like thousands of other people that would move here too. That yeah. would like want to be part of that, yeah. you know? Let me just throw this out then. We'll close the podcast with this. If you're the small town out there, and my small town, you know, this is 13,500 people. I'm saying 50,000 or less, you know, to me is a nice small town. Something more than like 5,000, but not more than like 25, 30 would be great. <laughs> 50, we're starting to get a little big. If you're a small town and you really want to be like the strong town, right? And you're dedicated oh, man, to it. Oh man, he's going to make an offer. I would totally love, I'm not going to make an offer because I can't speak for my wife and my kids. And, you know, we've got, you know, there's everybody else, but I would love to entertain the notion of checking that out. And I'll tell you, like, there's a couple criteria. You would have to be somewhere where I could actually get to an airport within an hour or an hour and a half. Right now it's like two and a half hours to the airport. That's like the far edge of what would be doable. Three hours, four hours. I just can't do it with my, with my job. It's not, not possible. And you'd have to have like good schools. That's the first thing my wife is going to look at. Horses would probably be a big plus for the girls. If, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, (laughs) if there was like a horse, yeah, if there was like a stable where you could get a horse and like go ride every now and then. Or just look at them, really. That's all the girls want. (laughs) You know what? That would be cool too. Send your nominations to Strong Towns and I think you should make this a thing. Should I? That would be, I feel like that would be a little self-indulgent for us, but. Okay, can I do it then? <laughs> <laughs> it would be kind of fun to like, you know, catalog and like look at the options. We've looked at like Florida, South Carolina, Colorado, California, Maine, Massachusetts, Maryland. I like those are the places off the top of my head that we've really like seriously looked at. I can't say that I would like rule any specific state out except <laughs> I would have a really hard time myself moving to California just because I see like the whole state on the verge of implosion. And I would have a really hard time moving to the desert because it's just, it would be too much of a climate shock for me. (laughs) You know, I'm Minnesotan. I like cold weather. I like snow. Winter at 70 degrees would not be nice. I, I don't think I could handle, like, I think it's brutally hot here when it gets to like 80, you know, Me too. (laughs) So yeah. So like I couldn't handle, you know, really, really, really hot and humid, but I wouldn't rule out Florida. So I obviously open to some things. I'm guessing, I'm guessing Hawaii and Alaska are probably not options either too far away. I would love to visit Alaska. I think Alaska would be just gorgeous. I've always had dreams of going there and Hawaii, of course, you know, everybody's dream is to go to Hawaii someday, just from a practical standpoint. If I'm going to move that far away, I'd move to Italy, you know? (laughs) <laughs> from a commuting standpoint is, you know, cause you're committing to what, like a, yeah, exactly. an, an eight hour plane flight anytime you go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. That would be pretty tough. So have we just done a thing? Have we just put out like a bring Chuck to you? Be the <laughs> official strong town. Be the official strong town. Yeah. Would we like, an, I suppose if I move there, that would be like even more of an endorsement than an actual endorsement. Wouldn't it? Yeah. You know what? I bet you would really, really love what is some Frederick- big old, tax incentives to get you <laughs> yeah would you subsidize my house subsidize yeah, my build a nice road uh, out to your new strong towns headquarters i tell you what i would make the same offer that i've made here to this city which is i will because i'm not eligible to be on the planning commission here because i don't i'm not a physical resident of the city my business is here and and our nonprofits based here and you know all that but I've never been an actual like residing within the city limits. So I'm not eligible to be on any committees, any commissions, anything. But I'll tell you what, if I move to a different small town through this process here, I, I will be, I will probably not volunteer to be on a committee or a board. We have to vote, but I will do like, you know, free advising to everybody. I would be happy to go to the meetings and meet with city officials and chat about this. We'll, we'll start a neighborhood's first thing there and get some like social capital, some neighborhoods moving in the right direction. I, I would, I would love to be involved in a city that said, yeah, that's what we want to do. I would not be a disengaged citizen. I would be a very active and engaged citizen, but not one who would like want to be mayor. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
I think we've got to have room in our cities for people who want to be involved, but don't want to sit through 50 board meetings, you know, over side yard setback variances and, you know, then or else be politicians. So I would be one of those people, one of the non, the citizen volunteers, very active, but not like running for office. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I feel like my inbox is already too full. It's going to be maybe crammed now. We'll see. We should set up a, an email address for an this. Email? We okay. want Chuck at Strong. No, no, that would be, that's too pretentious. <laughs> How about a, another place for Chuck? Another place for Chuck. I love it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, goodness. So. Email your your nominations and whatever thoughts you might have to another place for Chuck at strongtown.org. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll take a look at them, Grayson and I, and we'll evaluate them and uh, maybe arrange to come visit. I might have to move along too and film it. That would be so cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> I love what we do here. This is so much fun. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for coming to Brainerd. Oh, thanks for hosting me. Thanks for seeing it through your eyes and being honest about it and it being like an encouragement to me too, because you've helped me, you know, appreciate it a little bit more than I did last week. Yeah, there's some good stuff. There's some good stuff. There's some really good stuff. And I I shouldn't be as hard on it as it is, but you're always harder on the people you care about, right? You're always hard on the, where you have high expectations, right? Hear that, Brainerd? Yeah, hear that. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. Good day. This is Canadian Corner. I'm Bob McKenzie, and this is my brother Doug. Doug? Hey, take off. Hey, don't hit me. I'm just minding my own business here. We're going. What are you doing? I say this is my brother Doug. You're supposed to say good day. What? What? Can you hear me? Oh, geez, now I can't. You're wearing earmuffs for inside anyway, eh? Because I got a chill, eh? And I thought I might get sick. Don't drink my beer. Well, I'll get another one. We'll get another one then.